With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Human Octane. If you're the kind of person who pushes the limit, then you've got to check out Human Octane Apparel training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes, and these guys just get it. Everything they make drives lightning fast, has zippered pockets, is abrasion resistant in high contact areas without bulky padding. I've gotten to know these guys, and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. All right, so I finally have the great pleasure of having Elijah Markstrom on with me to discuss uh, some interesting topics re- regarding running mechanics, energy costs, OCR, all that kind of stuff. Elijah, for those of you that don't know him, is of the Obstacle Order, a OCR-driven podcast. Great stuff, great guys. We've had a chance to meet before, and I'm glad that we had a chance to catch up and do this show together Elijah, say hello to everybody. Hey, Richard. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we've been trying to trying to connect for a while now, and I jumped bait. You, you put out on Facebook you, you needed somebody to, to hop on a call with you, and uh, here we are. I'm, I'm actually in the middle of doing my laundry, so it's perfect timing. And um, thanks for mentioning Obstacle Order Podcast. You know, it's, it's going great. I think it's a great compliment to, to the information you, you're putting out there. Yeah, and I think it's a great show as well. On the point of the, the conversation we're going to have, I want to make sure that we let people know that if you're listening to this show via iTunes or some other mechanism like that, and you haven't physically gone to naturalrunningnetwork.com, you're going to miss out because there's going to be some associated information in print that you could probably download if you like that's going to be associated with this particular podcast episode. So, Visit the site. You'll get a chance to see some of the information that we're talking about, so you won't feel like you're in the dark if you're, you know, you might want to listen to this twice. Listen to it now. Go back and visit the site. Take a look at the information I've set out, and it'll all start to make a little bit more sense for you. But uh, before we get started on that, Elijah, I know that we had some unfinished business. You want to talk about a few things in the past, and we just never got around to it. So please, let's let's kick this can down the road. All right, ma'am. Okay, so. Um... Yeah, like I I reached out to Richard a couple months or a couple weeks back just kind of to get some details on um, the different strategies for changing and uh, working with 
dealing with lactate tolerance. And um, he re-released his episode called uh, Training the Dart Side. And I gave it another listen, but I still had a few questions regarding um, what you're trying to do with these intervals, how to progress them in terms of intensity, even if you are, or duration, or rest, or how to cycle through them and all this stuff. And I think that um, without working with Richard directly, you could get some pretty good information on how to structure your training um, and it is a little bit of a departure from what's commonly taught when it comes to interval training. So um, I'm excited to to pick your brain on this topic. I've actually been messing around with these different types of intervals. Uh, I hope I've been doing them correctly, but I've been feeling um, some pretty good results so far. Cool. All right. So you're right. And I think you were being politically correct by saying that it's a little bit of a departure from what is typical. Uh, because I all the time am the first person to admit that I'm a little bit off the cuff with my approach. And I think that the reason that I do what I do the way I do is because I'm not really dependent upon what I've learned from others in respect to my education, because I've had an opportunity to clinically evaluate literally thousands of athletes over the 20-some-odd years that I've been doing this testing. And through all this information that I've gathered, I've come to feel pretty strongly about what needs to occur when it comes to the development of lactate tolerance. And for those of you that are not sure what the heck I'm talking about, this ensuing production of lactic acid that occurs when the intensity goes up is very debilitating to your functional performance. And the analogy that I would use that I think is most appropriate, most anybody listening to this show has probably been in a gym at one time or another and did the traditional leg extension machine where you get up on this puppy, you have a seat, you you throw your ankles behind the roller pad, plug in the pin, and then start cranking that knee extension out until your quads literally blow up on fire from all the lactate production that you've created regionally. And I'm trying to paint a picture of what, to some degree, occurs when you get to a place in the intensity where this production of lactate in a particular region becomes so great that it effectively shuts down the muscle and keeps it from functioning until you get a bit of respite and your body has a chance to clear that lactate from the working muscles, and then um, you can continue again. Now, clearly, if you're running a race, you don't really have the luxury of being able to stop and wait for a minute or so for this lactate to subside if you're trying to win a race. You're going to have to be able to put up with it. And you'll see the pain and the anguish on a person's face as they're struggling through this episode as they approach the finish line often. I'll bet you've had that happen to yourself many times, right, Elijah? Yeah, I think I get that more in training. Um, they like doing intervals and stuff. It's definitely at the top of a hill. That's where I feel it the most. You're you're cresting a hill, and it's just everything is screaming at you, and you, you want to stop and stuff like that. Right. Well, so the, the, the point of the matter was, and the piece that I wrote called Training the Dark Side is about how to better understand, make friends, turn this uh, potential villain into an asset or an ally 
in your training and ultimately in your racing. And as you suggested, traditional interval training that you might find uh, coming out of school, for example, traditional track workouts where there's fixed distances relative to fixed recoveries. I like to use heart rate as an indicator that things are improving or things are going badly. And so far, especially in the work that I do, we use heart rate as a marker for the ensuing lactate production and ultimately what they refer to as lactate threshold. And once you've broached this threshold, things start going badly. Your body starts to um, shudder and spit and, and snort to try to um, shut down because it just doesn't like what you're doing to it. And there's a methodology in where if you train appropriately, I like to use the analogy of petting the belly of an alligator, okay? okay. <laughs> it's, it's tricky business, right? You have to be very, very <laughs> yeah. careful or it will bite you. And it's kind of, you know, I've used, I've used so many ridiculous analogies when I try to explain this. And I'm sure you heard the, the whole shuttling the books in the library. Analogy. Yeah, the books. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I like that one. Well, anyway, the, the, the idea is that you, when you're producing this lactate, your body will initially begin to um, press that lactate into your bloodstream, move it off into regions of the body that aren't working, and let it reside there. And ultimately, if everything goes well, it's going to reach back to that lactate later, shove it into your liver, and convert it back into a working sugar and shove it back into the working muscles and voila, it's now become an asset rather than a liability. Now, if you're not able to vacate that lactate effectively, and again, I, I left out the other part of it, which is you can vacate the lactate through respiration. It turns to carbon dioxide, you blow it out. It's like a relief valve for, no, for lack of a better way of expressing it. So, there's two ways of doing it. It's either you're reconstituting, relocating, and or drawing it back in for an energy source, or you're blowing it off in the course of carbon dioxide. Now, that happens, and going back to this analogy about, you know, me tossing you a book and you putting it on the shelf, tossing you two books, you work a little faster, but you, both, you get them both on the shelf. I throw five or six books at you, and they start to hit you in the face, and they start knocking you down. You, you're not able to keep up. Well, that's kind of what's happening to your body when you're running. And what we want to do is become more capable of managing the, the production of this lactate. And so, going back to the traditional approach to this type of thing, you have these, these intervals where the intensity may be too severe for you to actually learn anything from the episode. So, for example, if you're running a 400 and you had a fixed amount of time that you're trying to cover this distance in and you're doing repeats for that particular distance and you have a fixed amount of recovery, well, the recovery may not be great enough. It may be too much. The intensity may be too great. It may not be enough. It's just a little too ambiguous for me. Where heart rate, if you can marry it up to the lactate threshold and know where that lies, and through time and effort relative to the intensity, you could start to massage this lactate a little bit more effectively. 
And if you're using heart rate as a method of determining that this lactate has been cleared, then you're also more effective in, in keeping in touch with this whole process as opposed to just kind of discounting the rhythm of this lactate production or, or removal. Am I you still with me or am I going crazy? Well, no, and and one thing I think that's I think important is if when you're like we're we're talking about OCR here and these races are, you know, 45 minutes to an hour and a half to sometimes 3 hours and I've always wondered, okay, why am I running like a pace that I can only maintain for a minute? And then when I go run my race, I have to run a pace that I can maintain for 45 minutes or an hour, hour and a half. And so I was always wondering, like, is there a direct transfer of this 400 interval into my actual race? And then also, I'm not stopping in my race. So why am I stopping and standing there during my rest period? So, like, when I started, when I've been doing your, um, there, well, I feel some approximation of what your idea is. It's like, so a workout I might do. I'll just take you through one I did last week. So it was um, uh, three minutes of like a like running uh, faster, and then I was shooting for um, I think I was doing two minutes of a recovery period. And so what I would try to do is, you know, I have a pace I know is like my threshold like pace, right? So that's like about a five um, forty-five uh, minute per mile pace, and then I know around like 7:30 or 7:45 I drop down and recover. So I'm using your windows of like 160 and um 140 heart rate and so I'll run up, get my heart rate up, run at it for a while and then I'll keep running at it like a decent pace but not but not as fast and then I'll let myself recover and the way I understand it is like while doing that you're you're building like a more functional uh, capacity to shuttle the lactate compared to just standing there and stopping and letting it clear. Like you're dealing with it while you're working and you become more efficient at actual processing this while you're moving. Is that, is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Now um, I'm glad that you, you finished up by saying you were using those heart rate responses to determine when, when or to go up or to come back down um, rather than pace. Because perception is, is an ugly thing, especially when you're really good at dealing with a lot of pain. And it's really interesting, the people that I, I work with and I've tested, you see various types of individuals, and you can almost, based on the results from the test, tell them how they've trained. Because the information from the test kind of speaks of the way they've responded to the work they've done. And so you're right. And the, the approach is this. You want to get up and get exposed to a liberal but not an overwhelming amount of the lactate production. You want to tolerate it for a fixed amount of time before you allow yourself to have a relatively fixed amount of recovery. And so the, when I speak of time exposed to and or recovered from, I'm still indicating relative to heart rate. So let's say, let's go back to your numbers. If, if I suggested to you that you were going to go to 160 beats per minute, we don't begin the clock on the interval until you get there. And we don't begin the clock on the, okay. on the recovery of the interval until you get back down. 
So let's just say. Yeah, that was say, a big question I have for you. Yeah, so let's just say hypothetically that it took the, you 45 that, seconds to get to speed. Um, that doesn't count. Mm-hmm. We're going to count the time that you're there. Got it. Okay. And then we're not going to count the time okay. on the way back down. We're going to count the time that you're that you're at that recovery heart rate. Now, so let's just say that we we're going to progressively approach this. And you got to realize that there's some Kentucky windage involved in this. And this probably you're probably too young to even know what a Kentucky windage is, unless you've been in the military. But uh, definitely don't. No, no, I don't know that one. You're not a you're not a fan. Of, you, see, you get this with the old guys, right? You know, you never know what the hell we're going to say. Um, Kentucky windage, just because. No, I love this. I love the saying. I just don't know that one. <laughs> Kentucky windage is how they would determine how far you would lead someone when you're going to shoot them. You know, so you know this is like okay. a Daniel, this is a Daniel Boone thing, right? Daniel Boone would like uh, hold his musket out and see the Indian running across the field. And he would like, he'd lead the Indian relative to how far out he is so that the by the time the guy got there, the bullet would meet him, right? They call that Kentucky windage. So I'm telling you, you got to be old to, to get. Oh, actually, get, so someone's running, someone's running across an area. You shoot ahead of where they are. There you go. And then they run and hit the bullet. Exactly right. Okay. And I don't even know why I even said that now. What is that? How? Okay. Anyway, anyway that. <laughs> I'm wondering so the same it's a, thing. So it's a guesstimation. All right. Okay. So, you're, so you're, you have a, you, you have a workout. You're like, okay, I want to spend a minute and a half at the work uh, area, but it might take you 45 seconds to get up to there. You run at that work area, then you, then you pull it back to where you're down to 140, and then you're like, all right, I want to, cu- I want to recover for a minute and a half at this period. Yeah. So that overall interval might take a lot longer than three minutes. Yeah. It, yeah. And, okay. But so also, okay. while you're on that thread, the, the, what I was going to say until I took you down this crazy path is that uh, I like to get guys to think in terms of very, very modest and progressive approaches. So we look at a timeline of, say, three to one, three times recovery, one time work. All right? And so let's say that we're we're almost – annoyed by the way that feels because it seems so passive. Uh, So, for example, in your case, maybe getting up to uh, 160 beats per minute and sustaining it for three minutes may not be a big deal for you because you may, you know, intuitively be racing at 170, 175 beats per minute and could sustain that for a greater length of time. So it seems kind of easy. But what you don't realize is that if that, in fact, is above your threshold, the metabolic turn point where the lactate production is exceeding your ability to clear it, you're in fact anaerobic. So this ensuing production may be manageable, but it is absolutely um, corrupting the system, so to speak. And so what you want to do is you want to make peace with it at that lower intensity um, and then deal with that for a while and then shift up to, say, for example, a two-to-one and then possibly one to one, and then possibly one to two, and then possibly one to three. So you're you, talking about over the course of weeks. Yeah. Several weeks. Yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, the game should be should be driven over a great length of time. It's not a quick fix to anything. Anybody that's sure. hoping that over the uh, I got a race in two weeks, so I'm going to improve my lactate threshold this week. It's not going to happen. There's going to require some time to get this adaptation. So. 
This may be something that you're going to plug into your training plan systematically over time where it's always going to be there. And then as your fitness and your volume and your intensity starts to improve, that you are also keeping in touch with that progress in your lactate. And I think one of the questions you, you asked me, and you can clear it up for me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the questions you asked me was in respect to when to make the decision to shift to either a more intensity or longer duration of the of the interval sets. Was that a question you asked? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So what I like yep. to do is I like to make decisions based on all the outcomes of my training through time trials. So given that you don't have the you know the latitude of coming to see me every week to have another VO2 test to see if in fact this lactate threshold is shifted, the best way to 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 check your work is to do these time trials. And you want to measure these time trials. You could do it a variety of different ways. And incidentally, while we're talking about this. In my site, on the coaching page, there is an icon, a little bit of a, you know, like a 350-pixel image that says the art of the time trial, which is a bit of a blog that I wrote in respect to the value and how to approach these time trials. And so for those that are listening, you might want to check that out. But um, anyway, let's say, for example, that, and, and you've probably heard me tell you this, Once you've been tested, I like to do a time trial that is an aerobic-based time trial. So you may go out, depending on the level of athletes you are, you might be doing a one-mile, maybe a 5K time trial where all the deal points are in place. Your your running mechanics are spot on, and you're holding your heart rate to whatever that heart rate is that we've prescribed to you that would be considered aerobic, and you run – the mile, five five miles, whatever it might be, and determine how long it takes to cover that distance in an aerobic state. And then all through the course yep. of your training, when you start to get suspicious about whether or not you're improving, you conduct another time trial. And what's going to what you're going to find is that you're not going to be able to sustain pace, or you're going to be able to sustain greater pace with time. And it's all relative to the infusion of the training that you're you're putting in. So, for example, if you start throwing more intensity into your training, shorter duration, high-intensity training into the work, and you did a little too soon, you might see that you're sacrificing your aerobic potential. And or if the, the, mix okay. is, the mix is right, if you're doing the right things, you might see that you're getting a shove on your threshold and you're able to tolerate more and more intensity without having issue. So the time trials are the way to All right, make- I got a question on that. Yeah. So on on so you're you're using an aerobic um aerobic heart rate to do the time trial and but then your tr- but your training is above. above that um mark. Right. So or or in terms of these workouts, not obviously your like base running. Um why should you expect to see a decrease in pace at that at that aerobic uh, heart rate when you when you've been working more on your quote anaerobic type uh, efforts. Okay, good. That's a really good question. So try to work with me here now. Okay, we're going to do a little bit of imaginarium here. So let's just take a cylinder. Okay, try to imagine you're holding a cylinder, and this cylinder is going to represent uh, a cross section of muscle. All right. 
and then I'm I'm, okay. I'm holding this cylinder longitudinally, okay? So it's horizontally in my hands. And let's just try just to try okay. to get it in your head here. Let's let's cause this thing to be like uh, four inches in diameter. So it's a nice little tube. And then okay. if you were to draw a line, right. draw a line vertically through the center of it, all right? And let's just call that line okay. your, Got it. your threshold. And so the on the left hand side. Uh, wait, see, which which threshold? Aerobic threshold or anaerobic threshold? Uh, you pick. I don't care. Which threshold? Let's call it your anaerobic threshold. Okay, aerobic threshold. Okay. Anaerobic. Okay. <laughs> either it. either way, it doesn't make any difference to me. Let's just call it a threshold. All right. So we're let, let's let's call it something okay, different. Okay. Let's Sorry. call it something different. Let's call it your metabolic turn point. All right. Okay. Because that means the same thing to me. So there's a point in the road. Got it. Okay. Metabolic turn point where if you go north of that line, your body becomes anaerobic. And you're you're starting to facilitate more fast twitch fibers. Okay? And if you go south of that line, yep. you're being more aerobic and you're starting to facilitate the slow twitch fibers. Now, what ends up happening is you throw volume of work at this cylinder. And this line in the middle is going to shift north or south relative to the aggregate volume and intensity you toss at it. So, for example, if you spent three weeks doing high-intensity training with no aerobic conditioning, odds are your line is going to start shifting south. It's going to get lower. And if you did a lot of low-intensity work, the opposite would be true. You're, the line would shift north. And so this moving target, which is your metabolic turn point or your threshold, whether it be aerobic or anaerobic, is going to be very malleable, and it's going to be commensurate with the type of training you've done. So you could very easily end up, if you're fixed at a particular heart rate, so let's just say that just for lack of a better way of expression, let's say 150 beats per minute is your threshold. And you went out and did a time trial today. And let's just say it's a one-mile time trial, and you ran an eight-minute mile at 150 beats per minute. And then you decided that you wanted to get onto the CrossFit wagon and do a whole lot of high-intensity, short-duration training for the next three weeks. And you go back and you try to repeat that time trial. Uh, I'll bet dollars to donuts that the outcome will be that you're going to have to slow down in order to achieve the same end because you'll start to yeah. burn up sooner. Now, if the right mix of training is put in play, then what will end up happening is you, the, the threshold should start to move its way north. So you could take on more and more work without having this ensuing shutdown. Because when you solicit to the fast switch fibers, the fibers commonly become dense. And the reason they become dense is because of these intermediary fibers that reside between the slow and fast switch fibers. Um, in some worlds, they want to call it fast switch A, right? Or fast switch B being the real dense fibers, slow twitch fibers being uh, the oxidative fibers. But from a metabolic perspective, and I'm getting crazy here, but the, 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 this intermediate fiber in the, in the middle is referred to as slow oxidative glycolytic fibers. So what they're suggesting is that they have the ability to shift either north or south relative to the way they're trained. So they don't change. Yep. The fibers don't become one thing or the other. They just become more morphed or adaptable to the type of intensity or lack of intensity that it's being exposed to. And so that global 
change in the structure is what the outcome is. You'll start noticing things starting to tighten up again, and your, your musculature is not as porous. It's not as receptive to the oxygen being delivered to the working body. Fat burns in the presence of oxygen. In the absence of the oxygen being there, you go glycolytic, you burn sugar, and next thing you know, you're not able to vacate the lactate production, and it, it becomes ensuing and it becomes a problem. Okay. Did I just wear you out? Yep. Sorry, man. No, no. I'm, I'm just, it, the way I look at it, or I think is, um, you know, you've got like an 800 re- meter runner is going to have a lot of that type of fiber. A sprinter is going to be mostly fast twitch and a marathoner is going to be mostly slow twitch. And each person has a potential, you kind of have like a set amount of fast twitch muscle fiber. Um, you're not going to really do much to adjust that, but you have then you have a set amount, maybe a set amount of slow twitch muscle fiber, but you have this other fiber that's more malleable that can contribute to um, sort of moderate endurance. Well, beyond that, what it does is it, it assists. So let's just let's just say that we're a clone and we have 30, 30, 30, 33, 33, 33 percentages of these various fibers. And we're counting the slow oxidative fibers as being uh, on their own accord, rather than being a subcomponent of fast switch, all right? Because they kind of are. And what ends up happening is those intermediary fibers, if they double up with either the other two allies, they become a force. So if you do a mm. lot of low-intensity exercise, those slow oxidative fibers will, will buddy up with the slow twitch fibers, and now you've got a 66% slow twitch machine, and the same thing would apply if it was to do more high-intensity training. They go the other way. And that's where all this malleability okay. comes into play. This is, the, this is really the, the reason why anyone would even want to get a test is because you're identifying the way your body adapts to the training that you expose it to. And then what you want to know is what the formula is in order to get the most out of the way the body's responding to work. So your, okay. your, genetic, okay. your genetic makeup has much to do with where this is all going to shake out. But I think even more so, the way you've trained yourself habitually over your lifetime has a lot to do with the way this is going to work as well. I, I'll bet you that Galen Roth yeah, was never a power lifter. He's been running. I mean, if you look back <laughs> in his history, no. If you look back in his history, he's always been a long-distance runner, and you know, year after year after year after year, pounding that nail, he's just refined this thing to a point where it is what it is today. And, and I think, honestly, I don't even think he's he's anywhere near his potential yet. Really? Yeah, I think it's going to be really fun to watch what happens with him. <clears throat> and well, um, you want to jump into this this photo now that, since you're talking about Galen? Well, I do, but I, I want to make sure that I've answered all the questions you had first. Hmm. Well, I, I guess I have one more question uh, about that. It's kind of like, um, uh, is, it, is it beneficial to keep lengthening the, the interval? Is, is that the kind of thing that's going to then better translate to the race itself or is it really just about the stimulus and then 
recovering from the stimulus over and over during a, an interval session? And also, at what point do you kind of like shut it down? Like I've noticed sometimes these workouts, like my recovery, like all of a sudden my heart rate will get way higher on one of the intervals at the same pace, or I won't recover. It'll take me a lot longer to recover and stuff like that. So like, when do you know when the workout's done? Because you're, it sounds like you're not a person who is looking at a lot of like, okay, you're going to do eight 400s. You're like, all right, well, we're going to do these parameters and then we're going to need to stop or keep going if we can. Right. Okay. So that's a good question. And first of all, there, there, there's a lot of experiential concerns. Now, I think that ultimately, if, you're, if you've done your due diligence and you're progressively approaching your training and your intervals over time, that you get to a place where you can potentially toss in some steady state efforts. So, for example, instead of rolling up to 160 and hanging out there for three, five, six minutes, maybe you go up to 155, 157, and you stay there for an hour. And or maybe even throw okay. in a kick towards the end to see what, just to see what's going to happen. Because you need to test your limits. You've got to know whether or not you're capable of sustaining that type of intensity and for how long you're able to do it. But the idea is not to ask too much of yourself too early. And if you don't do that, then you're going to start noticing that there's going to be a progression in your ability to sustain the work. And you're going to be pushing this tolerance back so that you get to a place where you can get away with a lot more than you used to. Uh, but you're right. I don't really care so much about, uh, if, if, for example, if I said, I need you to do 10 of these. And your body says do eight, but you do 10 because I told you to. And the last two were just mud. I mean, it's really kind of contrary to the whole principle of training in my mind. Um, I, I like to look at uh, the, the amount of work you can do relative to the amount of recovery and the intensity you put in. And you're going to start noticing that that also becomes another way to measure whether you're, you're progressing or not. So, for example, if right. I said I want you to do 45 minutes with these intervals, and initially, if you're allowing recovery to dictate when you start the next interval, you may find that later in your training, you're able to produce more interval sets than you were before over the same amount of time, which is a pretty clear, yep. clear indication that things are getting better, right? Yes, okay. And then with that said the um how do you determine or, or i guess how slow how much do you drop off your pace because if i if i run a fast interval and then i just stop right. my heart is going to drop right right so but if i only drop a little bit it'll steadily go down but it'll take a while but you're saying you want to spend a certain amount of time at this lower like the your low end cap on this workout um how long, or, or I guess, like, how do you get to that point coming out of the interval? Well, I think that it depends on the intensity of the interval. If if the intensity is really, really high in shorter duration, you may need to stop. You may need to back all the way off and just really let things kind of come together. But if it's kind of a rolling, um, longer-based interval, you back off maybe 50%. You know, just, just well enough where you know that your body's going to recover at a, at a pretty good clip. But, you know, you don't want to – the other end of it, too, is that the, the bottom end limiter has much to do with hanging on to a percentage of that lactate. 
if you dump your heart rate too severely, then you've cleared it and you're kind of getting away from the, the, the potential to create tolerance, right? We want to keep some resident lactate in the system so that you're having to overcome it. So again, it's, it's, yeah, I understand that for sure. Yeah. It just becomes, you know, something you experiment with a little bit. And so the advantage of when I work with a client, uh, from a distance and they're throwing their workout for me to see, um, I can tell, you know, whether the recoveries are coming together nicely or not and, and whether they might want to shift because they're just getting through it too easily. So that's the other thing to look at as a consideration to make changes in the, the length or intensity of the intervals or the recovery for that matter is how quickly you're recovering. If you start finding, wow, I used to take two minutes to recover, and now I'm getting it done in 30 seconds, odds are you either need to spend a little more time at the top end or raise the bottom end up a little bit. And either one of those will end up providing you some progression. Okay, cool. Is that it? Um, and then do you vary, do you vary uh, workouts? So let's say you're doing two of these types of workouts in a week. Would you have one that's like shorter, shorter, more, maybe a little harder intervals, and then one that's a little bit longer or that steady state one? Or do you kind of just always phase in, phase I mix it up. I, it really, really depends on the individual and what the game is. I mean, if, for example, if you were one of my clients and you told me two weeks out your A race is going to be a sprint, the intervals are going to be fashioned where they're going to be shorter and more high intensity. I'm not going to start looking at long game exercises for you when I know you're trying to get ready for a sprint. Um, so I try just try to look at the game plan and then try to make decisions about how these things should be constructed based on that. Got it. Got it. All right. All right, let's take a look at Galen now. Let's do it. All right, so just let me just kind of preface this conversation by saying, number one, I have a lot of clients that have been drinking my Kool-Aid, and a couple of them I should throw their names out. Uh, a couple right out of the gate. Uh, Bruce Fisher, if you're out there, I want you to hear this because you asked me this question and now I'm trying to address it. You probably thought that I was blowing you off, but I've been working on this for you. And this little printout that you're going to get here is really for you, brother. So here's what happens. These guys figure out that A, they needed to get off their heels. B, they needed to get on midfoot. C, they needed to get their cadence orchestrated properly. And lo and behold, they get stuck where they start to feel like they can't go faster because their their stride is encumbered. And their stride is encumbered because they're trying to facilitate this frequency of 180 strides per minute. And then they basically get caught in this quagmire. And I commonly will get questions like, how in the hell am I ever going to go faster if I try to run with a cadence this quick because my stride is so short? And... So the picture that is exhibited here, which will be posted on the site probably by tomorrow, indicates uh, in the first picture I show A, which is how broad the hip angle is. And for those of you that may not have the advantage of seeing this right now with me, if I was to draw an apex from your hip socket and then in the course of your stride, you have a leading leg 
that's pitched out. So we're measuring from the hip socket to the knee of the forward leg and that hip socket back to the knee of the trailing leg in flight. You just now accelerated and pushed off the ground and you're just starting to get into the air. So that's how we measure hip angle. Commonly what I see with a lot of runners is their hip angles are less than about 80 degrees. In this particular picture, and I, I could not find a way to measure this on this image, um, but I'm guesstimating based on other hip angles that I have measured, that this is probably about a 100, 110 degree angle that he's, that he's running. And if you do the research, you'll find that most of the Ethiopian and Kenyan runners the secret to their sustainable pace is that, in fact, they have this really broad hip angle. So realizing this is audio, it's not video, you can't see what I'm doing right now, but just try to work with me here and draw your right knee up. And draw your knee up so it's almost near um, horizontal to your hip. So almost 90 degrees, I guess, will be from your, from your torso. And... Then if you just dropped your foot, the energy from this gravitational force pushing down on your leg, if your foot makes contact with the earth near your center of mass and you have an appropriate lean, you're going to get a really nice broad stride. And the repercussion of the energy that's gathered from the ground force when you do the right thing creates hip extension. So the force off the ground, and the analogy I like to use a lot when I talk to people, is being on a skateboard. If you've ever been on a skateboard, you've got one foot on the board, and in order to propel yourself forward, you would draw your knee up and then paw the ground where your foot would make contact on your midfoot, probably consistent with where your posted foot is on the board, and drive the ground behind you. And that would constitute that hip angle. And then the, the repercussion of having done that is great hip extension, which creates elastic energy at the hip, which would draw the knee back up, which is hip flexion. Now, I know I lost a lot of people here just now, but at the end of the day, if you just whip your leg back, you'll notice that your leg wants to draw back up to where it started. And this is essentially what should be happening when you're running. And I point this out in this imagery, is that the gravitational force is pushing down on the foot that is going to land very near center of mass, is going to provide you with a really powerful kick. You're going to draw off the ground really hard, and it's going to drive your body forward instead of up, which is where a lot of people get into trouble. Yep. You know, a lot of people that overstride, they're reaching out, making contact with the earth well ahead of their body. The, the consequence of having done that is they need to create hang time to transition the trailing leg to where the forward leg is. So they go up. And I measure this in my lab commonly. Daily I do this. I find people that will show me anywhere from five to six and a half inches of vertical hop because of the consequence of that overstriding. That means six and a half inches or six inches up six inches back down. You're, you're sacrificing a foot of travel for every stride that you take. In this video or this photo that I'm showing here, the consequence of this good mechanics 
is his ground contact is going to force him through space forward almost immediately. As soon as he makes contact with the ground, he's driving his body forward as opposed to trying to catch up to where his foot was and then finally getting a chance to push off. Now, you yep. know me, Elijah, and you know what I'm talking about. Do you think I just lost everybody? Um, I, I think if they're looking at the picture, um, they'll they'll get it. Uh, or if they, I mean, really, I mean, if you go and just watch it like a Olympic level 10K, you'll notice that the people's strides are pretty similar. They're they're very long, um, and they they distribute they display these hip angles. And if you record yourself running, you'll see that your knee doesn't get quite as high. Your foot isn't. Uh, you're not getting as much extension on the, on the trail leg. Um, and you're not getting as much flexion on as you're pulling through it, you know, in the knee, uh, to get the hip, the, the, the heel closer towards the butt. You see people sort of just leaving their stride hanging, right? Um, what, what Galen's doing in this picture is, is taking advantage of every single angle he can get as well as not losing any force production up or down or um, uh, or up, I guess. And then also uh, in terms of um, he's not fighting himself when his, when his foot hits the ground. He can just roll right through it because his foot's landing under him instead of out in front of him. Right. So a couple things. I appreciate the way you cleared that up for me too, by the way. He, you're right. His angles are appropriate and they are beneficial to his forward progress where – and it sounds odd, but a lot of people, without really even being aware of what they are doing, their, their perception is skewed. They are not effectively working with inertia. And in this picture, you'll see how his angle of his arm swing is, is uh, it's crooked to a little bit greater than 90 degrees. His fist is at the hip. His shoulder is in alignment with his hip. His ear is in alignment with his shoulder. So his posture is posted perfectly forward. He's got a bit of a lean. And the outcome is that everything is driving him forward. So we talked a lot just a moment ago about the, the consequence of lactate production being too high. All of these things are what's working against your forward progress. So if you clean up the mechanics in your movement, you lower the cost of work. And this is something that I, I harp on all the time, is in, in my world, the thing that I believe that I do is I'm focused on two things. I'm focused on developing economy and developing efficiency. Efficiency relates to how effectively you move through space, and economy relates to the cost associated with you moving through space. The rest of it, to me, is almost immaterial. If you focus on those two generic considerations, it's always going to put you in a better place. And, I mean, I can't, I wish I could have had another shot of him facing the camera to look at uh, the rest of it. So, because his arm swing is so perfect, there's no midline crossover when he makes contact with the ground. There's not going to be a lot of pronation. There's not going to be a lot of consequence of catching the outside edge of his foot, 
crossing down to finally make contact with great toe to get that acceleration off the foot. Um, there's no wiggle in the hips. There's no hip drop because he's making contact so close to his center of mass. His stability is solid. Everything about what he's doing is exactly what you should aspire to do as a runner. And in this piece I wrote, by the way, I credited Alberto Salazar with this. Now, some might say that he's cherry-picking and he's had the, 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 the great advantage of drawing the best athletes available from, you know, from the pool. But I watched him coaching Galen through his 5K indoor record. And looking at the cues he was given Galen all through the course of that run, were all tied to body mechanics. There was no screaming or looking at his stopwatch to see whether he's getting it done. He'd give him a little bit of a nod to drop your chin, Galen, give him a little bit of a movement pattern to say, you know, get your arm swing back in it. And he just, and you know that they had a relationship because Galen would see what he was doing and knew right away what kind of corrections he needed to make to get back on point with the way he needed to move. And the outcome is, the efficiency in the way he moved provided him the ability to be economical and support the pace that he needed to turn out a 12.58 5K time and a 26.40, I think it was, 10K time, which is crazy fast. Yeah, that's flying. Um, is this one of the reasons why you, you kind of, um, you know, beyond just the physiology of these intervals that you put someone at a little bit of a, you know, lower um, – I guess, effort on their interval pace so that they don't have, you know, a lot of times people will run pretty well until they are really trying to like hit a certain time or something like that. Then their form starts to fall apart or they've got too much, you know, buildup of acidic buildup and their form starts to fall apart. So they're practicing bad form. Like do you structure these intervals as a con partially so that you can have, you can work on economy and uh, movement efficiency at the same time? Well, I do a thing you're probably familiar with. I talk about it quite a lot. Is the motor skill drills, and oh yeah, yeah, I've been doing those. Those are great. I've seen people paint this in various fashions, but they never seem to talk about it in the same light that I talk about it. Which is the whole focus of those particular uh, workouts is very precisely to work on the efficiency of movement. It's not about being anaerobic or being aerobic. It's not a metabolic workout. It's clearly a mechanical aptitude drill. It's about trying to find as much speed as possible without error. And one of the advantages that I've had over the years working with high-speed treadmills is I've had the ability to take people up to some very, very serious speeds, and the focus being to do it with is uh, pristine efficiency. And you'll find that when you try to jump onto a treadmill that's moving at 25 miles per hour, there is very, very little room for error because the treadmill will punish you immediately if you do the wrong thing. Uh, again, it goes back to this petting the alligator's belly. You jump on a belt at 25 miles an hour and you try to overstride, that 25 mile an hour belt coming at you is going to jar you like there's no tomorrow. And in order for you to be able to do that, you have to make contact point precisely near your center of mass in order to adopt to the speed instantaneously. And that's a really good lesson for trying to figure out good mechanics. 
And then when we do these high-speed intervals like this for very, very short durations, I'm talking like five seconds, then I could take a guy back and he's doing sustainable efforts at uh, 20 miles an hour. You know, and it, when I say sustainable, I'm only talking about 15, 20 seconds. But believe me, if you can run for 20 seconds at 20 miles per hour, if I take you down to a five-minute pace, it feels like you're walking. And so this is neurological adaptations, and a lot of it's got to do with just the neural acuity that's, a, that's taken on by having experienced those intensities. So this is not about running out of energy or being, you know, uh, buried in this ensuing lactate production. It's all about neurological adaptations, and that's what those motor skill drills are about. Got it. So one thing I've noticed is um, as I try to increase my, my pace for a period of time, my, um, my stride rate will increase. And um, what I've been trying to pay attention to is, you know, just trying to always drop it back down to 180. Um, and so what I'll do is I'll try to actually lengthen my stride so that I can maintain the same pace at the same um, stride frequency. Uh, is is that are you always looking at that 180 regardless of if you're running a 5k or a, or a half marathon is that what you're looking for and then you're you're mostly just adjusting the length of your stride yes yes as a matter of fact that to me is the mystery behind all of this almost everybody that I meet if I put them on a treadmill or a track and say, okay, look, I want you to run, uh, just for the sake of uh, speed parameters, I want you to run um, a seven-minute mile. I want you to run a six-minute mile. I want you to run a five-minute mile, or that pace. They always will uh, lend themselves towards greater leg turnover in order to achieve greater speed. And to me, that's a mistake. If you have to turn your legs over quicker in order to create the speed, then ultimately what you're doing is you're increasing the cost of work, which is going to reduce your ability to sustain the work. If you can achieve the speed by lengthening your stride, you, you'll find that you're actually not having to increase the intensity near as much as you would if you have to increase the stride frequency. Why is that? Well, because first of all, if, if, it, if all goes well, a lot of it is a gravitational force. Because as you start to get that knee into play, that extension flexion reaction at the hip, um, every time your knee comes up, it's, it's pushed back to the, it's dropped back to the ground. The eccentric energy gathered from the hip extension causes the knee to flex again. And you just get into this, um, it's a rhythm. Your, your body just gets into a rhythm and you're not really having to work to, to, to get it to work. I did this with, uh, and I talked about this a lot because I was so taken back by it, but when I went down to Texas this last time around, I had Matt Campione on a treadmill, and Matt's been a student of the work I've done for about a year at that point in time. And I said, okay, Matt, I'm going to try to make you make a mistake. And we set a metronome on him, and we went to work. So I just started increasing the speed of the treadmill until we tapped the treadmill out, and then started to increase the, the elevation of the treadmill till we tapped that out. He never broke form. He never busted off the, the frequency. 
And for everybody standing there, it was apparent that it didn't look like he was running any faster than he was when he was at six miles per hour. And I think we ended up taking him to 12 miles per hour with about a 12% elevation. But his effort seemed consistent with what it was at half that speed. And so I would either elevate the, the machine, decrease the speed, increase the speed, no change in his stride frequency. The only difference that was discernible was the length of his stride opening up. And I'm telling you, he, it looked like it was less, almost less effort to go faster than it was to go slower. All right. So, oh, go ahead. Oh, so the point is, is that clearly there's going to come a point in the road where in order to go faster, you'll need to turn your legs over. But the reason I like this this imagery with Galen Rupp, I, I videoed him running that that 5K indoor record, and he never left 180 strides per minute the entire time. He was at that 180 strides per minute regardless of what he was doing. And he was able to turn out a 1258. I don't know what that works out to. You could do the math, but I'm sure it's uh, – you know, like, just just a taste over a four minute mile, right? Uh, yeah. So my attitude is is that when you get to a place where you're busting a four minute mile pace, and you you still feel like you need to put the hammer down, by all means increase it to 200 strides per minute. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, and or by the way, and or if you're exceeding your ability to create speed, and you see the finish line and the guy at your side is about to take money from you absolutely bust that that frequency because you know that it's sustainable for the balance of the, the trip all right now i got one for you this might might throw you off you might just think it's ridiculous but um you know hobie call right the guy who won the uh yeah, yeah, Spartan yeah. championships um he he has a, a theory essentially that if you load up uh if you load up a, a an interval or something like that you put on a weight vest um you can you can run the the pace you want to run at a race, for example, but get a higher intensity, right? So you're you're not having to do overspeed in order to get your heart rate to a certain um, level. Uh, what are your thoughts on like training with a weight weight vest and actual actually running uh, intervals and things of that nature? Do you think it's there's any place for that? You know, I don't really know, to be honest. And I, by the way, I've written curriculum for a company that makes weighted vests. Uh, I wrote it probably 10 years ago. And the curriculum was, um, I can't remember the name of the company at this point. But we, we looked at all the different aspects of the outcome of training with a vest. And it wasn't very specific to running. It was more specific just to functional strength exercises with the vest on. But the same thing applies. It's just what kind of influence does it have to overload while you're running or doing whatever you're doing? And I'm, I'm sure there's value in it, and especially in the sport of OCR where there's so many heavy carries that you have to conduct, and you need to get used to carrying load. Yep. And the advantage of wearing a vest as opposed to carrying something is that it allows you a little more free form and, and movement. And so I think that there's probably much to be said for using a vest. Now, whether or not there's some significant benefit in, you know, training at a lower pace and gaining greater intensity relative to carrying the weight, and that parlays into your ability to go faster, I don't know. I don't know. 
Um, I think neurologically carrying them a little bit more load has repercussion. You're facilitating different musculature when you're carrying the load. Uh, globally carrying more load than on musculature than you might normally. If you go back to theories, you know, this might seem off point, but I, I like the analogy is uh, Joseph Pilates talked about, you know, first you train the stabilizers, then you train the prime movers. There, there's something to be said for the neurological repercussion of taking on load and where that load facilitates specific muscles. And it may be a benefit, it may be a detriment. I'd, I'd really have to spend a lot of time playing with it to figure it out. But to answer your question, I think a little simpler, I absolutely have my clients do load. And generally it is uh, at a point where, I mean, again, it's the sport of OCR. There's going to be incline, there's going to be climbing, there's going to be uh, weight to carry, and you need to prepare for it. So I look at it as sport, as sport specificity. Okay. All right. Now, when it comes to frequency and varying your grade, um, most uh, OCR races don't involve very much flat ground. Um how do you, you know, how do you coach someone on what they're doing with their their stride frequency relative to uh, steep incline, moderate incline, steep decline, moderate uh, decline? Well, we adjust we adjust accordingly, and uh, you know these clinics that we do, we experiment a lot with up and down hills. And what I like to do traditionally, it's almost like a science project for me. I have people run up the hill the way they normally might. And then I encourage them to make some changes and try it again and make another change and try it again and try to find what suits them. And clearly from a standpoint of physics, going downhill, you don't want to lean back. You don't want to create any more imposing braking forces. And that would suggest that you want to increase your stride frequency to roll down the hill quicker as opposed to try to, you know, chop at the hill going down. And taking smaller bites going up the hill is smarter than trying to take bigger bites. So that encourages more frequency as well. So traditionally what I suggest to people is that if, if you can come down at 180 strides per minute, it's working for you, good for you. If you feel like you can handle going downhill at 200 strides per minute, even better for you. Because now you've got inertia at your back. You're no longer battling with vertical oscillation, things like this. Um, you've, you've got gravity at your back. So... Uh, it's like surfing, you know, you just you just take the, 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 I mean, look at John Alvin. He goes ripping down these really steep slides, and his legs are just blurring as he goes down. Oh, yeah. He's learned to do it. And so I, I encourage people to really kind of find their own rhythm when they go down these hills. Okay. Now, going back to Galen and his, his the hip angle we're talking about, if somebody currently has like a pretty, pretty choppy stride, you know, um, it, what are some things they can do to actually to get the sense that this is improving or to, to improve it? Would running downhill actually be one of those, like a slight down, downhill where you, you know if you're overstriding when you're running downhill because you yeah, might fall on well, your face? Yeah, see, the, the, problem, the problem that I see in that is that if you're trying to encourage uh, your hip angle going downhill, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I don't know. I just. It, it sounds to me like you're going to take on a lot more stress than you should. Okay. I, I think. Yeah. The, I think the best exercise, and this is really a big question because people are asking me all the time, how do I encourage this hip angle? And all I can tell you is, the closer you get to appropriate form, 
the more likely you are able to create more force. And the more force you create, the more hip angle you're going to get, if that makes any sense. Right? Yeah, so I think so. if you drop a ball from two feet, the bounce you get is going to be common straight with that two-foot drop. If you drop a ball from six feet, it's going to bounce higher, right? So if you draw your knee up in the course of your running stride a bit higher and you punch off the ground forcefully with the correct body language, in other words, angled so that you're not hopping up and down, that the, the consequence of that force off the ground is going to cause your hip to extend further. And that hip extension is going to create flexion. It's going to bounce that knee back up to you. You can't okay. do you can't do it on a treadmill unless you're you know running against rubber bands like I do a lot. But uh, outside you'll start to feel it and you'll start to notice that your hip extension starts to improve. Yeah, and I, and also if you look at this image, you see his arm is really back. He's he's got right. full extension in the shoulder. Is that is that like an easier place for someone to? to think about what's happening in their stride in terms of if they're really driving their elbow back, they're going to get a counter movement in the, in the hip and knee. Uh, they, you don't have a choice. So if they, it, it, but it might be harder. They might do more weird things like sort of in their legs if that's all they're thinking about. But if they think about their arms, like really driving back, they might get that oppos- opposing force in the knee. Yeah. I think you're on. I think you're onto something. I I clearly believe that there is an entrainment level that occurs from the arm swing to to your legs, and I, I do this all the time. I say double up your arms, and you know, obviously what they do is they double up their their cadence as well, and so there there's absolutely uh, a relationship between the depth of your arm swing and the depth of your stride. So. Absolutely. But I mean, you, you need to be sure that you're squaring your hips with your shoulders and that you're drawing backwards as opposed to pulling your arms up in front of yourself. And I think that that's probably, mm, okay. a, it's a good cue. Yeah. I, I think that's actually pr- a pretty key distinction. Cause even if you look at this image, he's not really punching with his opposing arm. It's, it's just, it's right. You know, it's four inches from his chest, the forward arm, whereas the, 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 arm that's back is that at full 90 degrees almost relative to his torso hips to nips yep yep uh cool well look i think we've uh pretty much covered everything you could possibly ever want to know <laughs> i think so yeah <laughs> pretty right, so, thorough um let's uh once upon one more time uh let's give a plug to obstacle order what's what's on tap what are you guys doing this, this week or next week all right. Well, tomorrow uh, or today on the on the call, we've got Ian Hosick. He's a oh. elite uh, Spartan racer yeah. and a coach as well. Yeah. Um, he's he's going to be out, and then next week likely is going to be a catch up call between Phil and myself, which will we'll cover the um, Spartan race in San Jose um, or Diablo Grande. And then also, I know Phil did one out in uh, Europe. Uh, he did one in the UK, a Spartan race out there. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. Talk about the differences probably between what's out there and what they have here. And, um, and then you know, upcoming, I'm gonna do the Seattle uh, Spartan race. I'm gonna be doing the sprint up there. And um, are you yeah. doing Monterey? Yeah, I'll be doing Monterey for sure. That's kind of like my A race. 
Oh, cool. I think I'm going to come. I was, I've been toying with it and I got a lot of people racing. So yeah, I mean, it's going to be, it's an NBC race. It's, it's a great course. Everybody flies on it. It was really fun last year too. It was a really good course. Yeah. I was there last year. I just, uh, um, I don't know. I just, I'm still getting over the drive. I'm lazy, man. I just hate, hate driving. Catch an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. I could do that too, I suppose. Well, thank you so much. Yep. Thank you, Richard. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.